Warning, this podcast will challenge your thinking. Welcome to Business Problems Solved. In this podcast, we help you solve your business problems by providing real examples and practical approaches to make today better than yesterday. Introducing your host, the multi-sector, self-professed, most improved improvement person and qualified business problem solver. Lee Horton. Hey, welcome to this week's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with somebody who I've followed on LinkedIn for a considerable amount of time. If you have um, an interest in the brain, um, how the brain and the mind can influence successful organisational change, then this is the guy you need to listen to. I got so much from this. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Hey, it's Lee. Welcome to Business Problem Solved. Today, I have the immense pleasure of talking to somebody I followed in a non-stalkerish way on LinkedIn for a considerable length of time. He's a management consultant at Grant Thornton. He's the originator of the psychology of change for organizational transformation. Hello, David Bobis. How the devil are you? Hi, Lee. Yeah, good, thanks. Good stuff. So for those people that don't know who you are, who are you and how have you got to sit in that seat today? Oh, good question. Um, going back 30 plus years, I won't say quite how many, but um, started off as a plastic injection mould tool maker. Um, it's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an actor and um, I was told by my parents I had to get a proper job. So um, ended up in engineering and um, ended up through the early 90s, redundant and out in Germany, working on press tools, came back to production engineering environment and um, got sent on uh, what the, my colleagues said I was going on a brainwashing exercise turned out to be um, world-class manufacturing that now everybody considers to be lean um, and with a dad that was ex-army it um, all made a lot of sense in terms of being very practical so I made it my mission to learn about it and teach it been doing that around Europe for a long long time um, but a few years in realized it didn't really stick no matter what banner it came under and what name it got called um and it was largely about people so uh, yeah i um studied psychology and philosophy and neuroscience and some esoteric subjects like that alongside practicing as a consultant and leading business change and um try to understand the people piece a bit more wow okay so a couple of questions uh what type of actor did you want to be um one that could earn a lot of money and have fancy <laughs> houses with big swimming pools man. <laughs> yeah amazing and, and secondly when you said um it was all about people how did you come to that realization Oh, it's a, I suppose it's a funny story. Is it a funny story? It's a story, at least. It's um, I I was leading um a big chunk of a, a conversion to Kanban for a company I was employed by, and we'd done the whole thing, you know, sixty percent floor space reductions and powder coated um, machinery and racks out white to support the TPM approach. Everything was visually managed. Really, really fantastic being transformation, including a proper, you know, ticket based going in and a reciprocal ticket, replacing purchase orders, um, going in and out of the business with supply chain development work being done all over the place, all over the country. Um, and it was a, a raging success. We had huge performance improvements in in all quarters and sort of quality cost delivery growth safety and morale as used to be included way back then um and i went back a few years later i'd made a couple of friends along the way uh, carl and sharon and i popped in to see him when i was passing one day and then door and said you know you wait till you see what you uh, see when you walk through the door now so there's me thinking it's going to be great this is you know a, a company that multiple years down the road after a, a big lean transformation and i walked back in and it had all gone it all slipped and um, I was really disappointed because it was really good work. Uh, and I said to him, you know, what's, what, what's going on here then? And they said, well, we didn't believe in all that 
group in the first place. And something in my head clicked. It was like, wow, this is about what people believe and whether they actually believe in these principles and approaches more than it's about the tools and techniques themselves. You know, we know they stand up to a test. Um, but if people don't really engage with it and they don't change the way they see it, then, then they don't change. So that was, that was the catalyst, really. I, I, um, I just took it upon myself to sort of try and understand a bit more about people and, and I realized to be honest with a pretty normal secondary school education I um I didn't actually know what the word philosophy meant I wasn't quite sure what psychology was in when it was different to psychiatry um and since I found out quite a lot of people in the same boat so <laughs> I started there trying to find out what some of these long words meant and uh, and and I haven't stopped reading for 20 years so amazing amazing so how do you get, I guess the, the, the number one question I've got following what you've said is, somebody, people always say when I, every, business I, every, every business and every team I turn up to, it's uh, oh, we've always done it that way. Um, how do you get them to believe there is an alternative way? Well, do you know what? I mean, it's taken a long time to evolve an approach, but now I, I kind of start the wrong end as far as a lot of people can see things i mean in terms of addressing real business problems then you know it's still a conversation to be had but in terms of developing thinking um around change then i, I like to start now introducing some of the the key basics around what human brains actually do how they function and and why they do or don't change um link that into the psychology and some of the barriers that get put up and for what reasons and then link that into you know so what does effective um, policy deployment or strategy deployment like Hoshin Camry type models what are they really doing from a human perspective and what are the lean tools from a human perspective and then you can link that into so you, get, you sort of go brain mind um, culture strategy change and then you can once people know some of that stuff it completely transforms the way they see the world and, and the way they approach any development initiative in any business wow, wow. so you've just used two words there. so you've used brain and mind what's the difference between the two um, I talk about brain in terms of the, the functional mechanics, the, the neurons and the bits that the brain's made up of. You know, so obviously we, most people recognise the brain as having two hemispheres at a slightly different level. Other people might recognise it. It's got three different layers, um, sort of the old reptilian brain, as people call it in simple language, and the mammalian brain in the middle, the limbic system. And above that, this neocortex, which is the lumpy, bumpy things that most people consider brains look like, um, which is a layer of neurons about three or five millimetres thick. So you've got that is the mechanics of the brain, if you like. And then because of this thing called neurogenesis, the brain changes over time. Um, all, it never stops changing through the whole of life, which is, uh, breaks some, some old paradigms. Um, and that process of change is what established what Hebbian law says is the, the wiring and firing pattern. So the, the brain is the wiring and the, the psychology is the firing. So in which order do which parts of the brain link up together and why do they react in sequence the way they do? That's more the mind and that's what gives us our personality traits and some of our characteristics. So it's... Um, so that's the difference for me. It's the mechanics versus the emergent properties of those mechanics. Got you, got you. So when you go to your first session and, and people are expecting organisational um, change to be the, the subject and you whip out a, a picture of the brain, what reactions do you, what, what reactions do you get? Uh, there's a bit more of a setup than that. We don't just launch into brains without people expecting it coming because we wouldn't be really practicing what we preach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, normally this comes after, you know, normal kind of engagement, interest in terms of fixing real-life business problems. Um, and, you know, some of the things you see typically in a lot of businesses, a lack of top floor to shop floor coordination, um, you know, people 
are uh, all leaders are human and quite a lot of them are in positions where the challenges that come at them um, can can unsettle them a bit and they're just doing the best job they can in very challenging situations so when we start talking about um, psychological safety and and you know some of the key component psychological elements that that sit behind high performance teams um, and what the difference it would feel like in terms of how the business functions how the teams um, communicate um, and interrelate with each other um, and how some of the tools can help that happen um, then they, they it's surprising how quickly people get um, engaged and um, want to do something with it and I actually find now that when I have these conversations with people that are facing real business problems largely They've been through a load of change programs in the past and they've tried Lean and they've tried Six Sigma and they've tried Agile and they've tried, you know, this, that and the other, ERP, MRP, you know, that's a whole kit and caboodle that's been in the, the market for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and, you know, where they've had some wins, they've not always been sustained. So when we talk about what do you need to do differently to make these things sustainable and genuinely talk about, you know, a conscious capacity to change culture because you know what some of those component parts are, then um it, it gains a lot of interest. And I'm actually finding that this is rather than jumping straight into, you know, let's get on the shop floor and fix some manufacturing issues and some operational issues or sales operations and financial planning issues. When you put it in that context of people, process and systems, then and we say, look, you know, this is the world's been focused on process and systems forever, but we haven't done so much around the people piece. And, and this is you, you can demonstrate why that's where the you know where the uh, problems come from for organisations, um, then I'm I'm actually doing more of this work up front and doing that deep alignment for leadership teams and getting everybody on the same page, speaking a slightly different language uh, than I'm doing in terms of the practical um, frontline change stuff now i mean it, it leads there eventually but i'm starting with this most of the time in most of the projects i'm doing got you got you so is it i'm conscious of the time you're a busy popular chat but how can can you simplify how does the brain work um and how do you get people to to believe that change is possible when you've articulated how the brain works well i think it's just a case of understanding in terms of I mean, so we let's talk about change in terms of business and process and talk about transition in terms of human beings having to make a, a move so when you make changes you get you know you're doing that to your physical environment um and to process and procedure and tangible things like strategy and structure and all that kind of stuff you know like mckinsey 7s type models um when you when you get into the what people call soft skills which is obviously we all know is the hardest part you, you're talking about how the human being transitions um and adjusts and adapts in that change environment so you're you're changing the physical environment, you're changing perceptions of risk, you're changing the social dynamic, um, you're chasing, changing levels of systemic control when you're talking about systems. So you've got all these different things that human beings have learned, the environment in which human beings have learned to survive. And so when you say, you know, you, you can understand more about the brain and the fact that, you know, it does, I mean, one of the old beliefs out there in, in the world has been that you're born with your brain and it evolves and develops when you're a kid and then it gets fixed and you live with what you've got for the rest of your life. And that's, you know, it's simply not true. New, neurogenesis, which was this new principle, you know, I mean, genesis being the birth of something new um, and neuro being, you know, reference to neurons. It's the birth of new neurons in the brain. And literally we've got things called progenitor cells in our brain, which are like stem cells in the rest of our body that can grow complete new neurons. And, and the ones that are currently integrated into our brain to give us 
our view of the world and make us respond and react and behave the way we do to certain stimulus, they can, if we get the right stimulus to challenge their presence, the brain can completely let one neuron die, grow a new one, make it travel reasonably large distances in terms of, you know, nanometers and, um, and reintegrate a brand new set of connections into the brain to, to form a new view of the world. So when people start to understand some of the science, and I think this is, the, you know, just as a quick aside, this is the bit that fascinates me. We've tried understanding the Japanese culture and replicating Toyota and all the lean stuff for all these years and never really got to grips with the philosophy, um, you know, which comes down to largely a respect for humanity and a respect for people um, alongside a sense of continuous improvement through, Kaizen and Hansai and personal development so that you're doing what's best for others and we've got that much more community-based philosophy in Japan that, that sits behind all this at a cultural level and and we've focused on tools and techniques in the West because we've got a totally different language register a totally different language set uh, and way of, of contextualizing the world through that language so when we if, if we're going to appeal to Western brains to understand some of the deeper issues that we need to understand to get organizational change to be effective and sustainable, then we've got to really um, take what the Japanese know intuitively and, and convert it into something the Western brain can accept. And I think that the, the language we need to use is science. So then when we can say that the, this is the way the brain changes and we can show the, the double blind peer reviewed studies um, and multiple versions of them that, that show this principle of neurogenesis and we can absolutely demonstrate that brains change and that's what it means for us to change as human beings then that's a language set that people can actually respond positively to um, whereas we talk about kaizen and hansai and you know or socratic reflection and, and going back thousands of years when this level of thinking was being put into uh, to what what it means to be human and um, sometimes that loses people so what i find is the science just really helps Got you, got you. Uh, somebody today said to me it takes uh, 21 days to form a new habit. Um, how long does it take for people to actually change, to go from that belief to the act? It's, it's such a complicated answer to a really simple question and 21 days and 10,000 hours are all guesswork. Um, so what it... Um, so if you extrapolate the maths that um, Elizabeth Gould presented in her RSA talk um, when she got the Ben Franklin Award, um, you can kind of make some guesses. So if you're thinking, they, they were looking at the hippocampus, which is, for people that don't know, the area of the brain that largely deals with memory formation. Um, but it's interlinked and it's all part of a system of systems. But just simply put, think about the hippocampus as forming memories that's got quite a few million um, neurons in that small portion of brain um, and in mice tests have shown that to get um, to a critical mass of new neurons and neurons adjusting the way they wire and fire together through what they call four r's which is reweighting rewiring regeneration regrowth then you it takes a certain period of time so we can kind of extrapolate the maths that come from that those mouse studies and look at it in terms of human brains um and from from memory i did this a long time ago it it seems to me that the rate of change um at a neuronal level in completely novel conditions so if you completely change somebody's world pick pick a human being up and put them in a different physical environment with different language with different weather and whatever else it might be then you could expect those completely novel conditions to stimulate the rewiring of the brain over about a nine-month period so so that adjustment it takes a lot longer than people give credit for um, and it's got to be consistent and it's got to be at a physical level and a social level and a language level so when we think about 
going into businesses and um, trying to introduce change and that we're going to get somewhere you know this is why we typically talk in three to five year programs um but you know thinking you're going to do something in the next three months or six months yes you'll be able to do something but whether you're going to get the the human element to make that adaption in that period of time is a totally different argument and, and it probably doesn't happen the only way you can accelerate change and you can probably associate to this um from anybody's personal experience is you know you can you can fall in love with somebody quite quickly um if they're particularly attractive to you. Um, but if they say something wrong or they do something that, that breaks your trust, you can think really badly of them just as quickly, you know, so there is the capacity for the brain to make really rapid adjustments. And it's not, it's not like we don't like change. You know, we change our clothes, we change our cars, we change our holiday destinations. We love, we like change and we go towards change that we choose, but we can quite easily have our fear based defense mechanisms provoked by having change imposed upon us so it's you know there's a lot to it and there is a rapid way of the brain changing but there's this also this very slow way of the brain changing and if you think about that in terms of leading change in business what you've got to try and do is get people to fall in love with the change and also then think about their own self-concept whether they're comfortable with change you know all those kind of things so it's a huge mix but like i say that's why after 20 years i've got a few key points i explain about the brain i've got a few key points i explain about the mind and i link it in all very quickly to culture and change so we can get back to dealing with real world problems yeah got you got you so just just articulate a little bit about the mind so we spoke about the, the brain and the brain work, but what how does how does the mind work so when you go from believing to, to thinking how, how how does all of that that manifest itself um so i'll give you a quick example there's a, i mean again a lot of this stuff comes with really long words we've got to try and make simple um so it's accessible for people but there's a principle called um uh, inhibitive and compulsive destructive criticism okay so what that means is our parents um, shout and scream at us when we're kids for our own safety because we're all little kamikaze pilots and we'll quite happily run out in front of a, a fast-moving car right so our parents say no 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 don't do that Dave you know please don't don't run and where we're born with this we've only got two primary fears when we're born which is falling and loud noises within the first few years we get to learn how to be um, fearful of failure and rejection and this comes from this control mechanism imposed by parents in our own self-interest so um we we go from a, a fundamental principle of i can which allows us to learn to walk learn to talk control our bladders and whatever else it might be to this this fundamental principle of i can't i shouldn't i'm being told off and i'm naughty and i'm wrong in the world if i do so we, we go from i can to i can't kind of mentality um because of that imposed control uh, and what that means is we're compelled to do things that we might not choose to do ourselves which is to say please and thank you or um, put your hand up when you want to ask a question in school or whatever else it might be um, and then we're inhibited from doing other things so when we want to um, shout and scream we're told to shush you know so all of these little tiny things in life form our um our capacity to respond and react and it, and it develops our own self-concept and how much confidence we've got in ourselves so depending on levels of imposed control through parents at a social level or significant carers at a social level um, provoking our brain to respond in its early formation periods you, you've got um the, the uh bio survival is like the first year emo territorial emotional territorial imprinting so all this imprinting and, and classical conditioning and operant conditioning at a psychological level is forming our brains and that's what forms so our mind is that wiring and firing pattern that's established in the brain and, and it's in, impacted and affected by all of our life's experience um but it doesn't mean to say it's fixed we can learn to be confident we can learn to be brave if we're you know pre-programmed to uh, 
and, and again, there's a genetic element. We're only talking about 50% of nature, we, uh, of nurture. We've also got the nature aspect, which is what we're genetically predisposed to, um, what parts of our brain are predisposed to genetically respond to stimulus in different ways. So some, you know, some people can suffer immense trauma um, and survive and go on to live a perfectly normal life. And other people can have minor interruptions and fall apart. Um, sometimes that's down to the genetics and not just the, the nature aspect. Got you. Got you. So, um, and I'm going to oversimplify this as well. So some people believe that just saying things to yourself can make you behave differently. But what you're saying is that there's, and, and rightly so, there's a lot more to that. So if you had to give some practical um, advice to somebody that wanted to, to, to get somebody to be able to do something different, so yes, they've got to believe and they've got to fall in love with that, that change or something, um, what do they need to think or what do they need to do to also support that change? Does that make sense? So, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've created this model that you'll see on my LinkedIn profile. It's, it's BTFA. And it just simplifies everything we've been talking about to give people accessible language to start with. So it just means believe, think, feel, act. And what it means is if, if you're going to act differently, if you're going to behave in the world, then you've got a thinking and feeling component to be aware of. And you've got to understand that your fundamental response is going to be based on your wiring and firing pattern, which we loosely call beliefs, right? So but to pick up on your point you just mentioned, um, one really powerful thing that you can do is become aware of what they call metacognition, which is thinking about your thinking. Um, which is fascinating. You've got a little bit on the right-hand side of your brain called the RTPJ, the, the right temporal primary junction. And that's actually designed to think about your thinking and other people's thinking. <laughs> the brain's but, but what you can do is, you know, when you, um, you're driving your car and you, you've done three miles and then you kind of come back into the world and you think, oh, how did I get here? I don't remember driving the last few miles. You know, or you're reading a book and you stop reading a book and you realize you're thinking about something else, even though your eyes are still scanning the words on the page. So what that is, is, is when we get into sort of beta level um, brainwave patterns, um, or sorry, alpha level brainwave patterns, it's when you're slightly more relaxed and you're in this sort of... Um, sort of mantra type meditation kind of brain state when you're doing something that's very repetitive like reading or driving um, and what it allows the brain to do is start to make broader connections across itself over a longer time period so the memories come back and this is when you start to you know problem solve and rationalize and innovate and come up with ideal solutions it happens in the shower in the mornings as well you know because your brain's fresh and just out of sleep so this whole principle of of what your brain's doing in terms of what we call thinking, you can become kind of personally aware of that. So you can tell yourself to, to sort of um, to stop if you're saying anything negatively to yourself. And, and it's thinking about your thinking, understanding what you've been saying to yourself in those moments and then replaying it back and say, and realizing if it was positive or negative, whether it's contributing or contaminating your, your world, your quality of life. And where it's negative, you can, you can, by shouting the word stop inside your head, not out loud, you get funny looks in the street, trust me. But, <laughs> but by doing these kind of mental exercises and understanding what's going on and why you're doing them, so it makes sense that you're doing them, you can literally rewire your brain. So to some extent, um, and it's the same sort of principle that's now being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, it's now known that that's a neural network a connection between the amygdala and the hippocampus. And it's this short circuit where you just replay the wrong memories and respond, you know, in a way where you think you're still in a different environment. You know, an ex-war zone when a car backfires is the typical example. Um, and now psychologists, you know, talking therapy type psychologists 
they got the the sort of like EMDR type treatment that can interrupt that neural pattern so and what it does is by interrupting it um you, it provokes the brain to start rewiring and you can you can get over ptsd um and in the, it's the same principle that's just an extreme version and we're talking about the masses you know we're talking about everybody else in the world and not the people at the extremes um but the same principle applies you can if you interrupt your your automatic thinking patterns you can you can change them um, and I know I've you know I'm I've done it. I'm in, in a very different place in my mind and in the world than I was 15, 20 years ago. Wow. Okay. No. Fantastic. And before you you mentioned you got brain, then you got mind, and then you got culture. What's your definition of culture? Oh, it's uh, quite specific around brain and mind, and I've got it written down because I, I I evolved it, and it took a long time coming, so I can't remember <laughs> it off the top of my head. <laughs> but it's um, from the cultural point of view. I think what, what I try and do is get people to understand that culture is pretty much defined through language, um, and especially you can yeah, draw the big parallels between pictograms and iconograms from a kanji sort of Japanese cultural perspective, and and the sort of alphanumeric text that we use in the West, and the massive differences between those things, um, and now it actually has um, encouraged uh, Eastern versus Western brains to evolve differently. So Japanese, you know, brains actually perceive the world differently, and it's largely because of the language and the backdrop that they they um, develop in, but. Um, the, um, sorry, mate, what was your question again? I started going on a bit of a tangent to, <laughs> no, to, no, to, no. to give you some context and lost my train of thought. Yeah, de- definition of culture. So how would you define definition. So you've got brain, mind, then culture, but what is your definition of culture and then how would you go about um, addressing that culture? Yeah, so the definition, again, is, is largely fixated on the brain and mind aspect. But um, the, bit I was, the bit I was leading up to and then forgot my way was the fact that if you understand that culture pivots on language, then if you can introduce new language, like the, the language of science around brain change for changing organisations, then you fundamentally have a, a positive impact on culture. And then also you can start to think about the culture that's used at... Um, in terms of different responsibility levels and time horizons. So if you think of the guys on the shop floor, you know, where we've come from, you're talking about the targets you've got hit by the end of the day and the end of the week. The managers are talking end of the month and probably the end of the year and the directors are talking end of the end of the year, end of the next three to five years. So you've got different levels of responsibility that come with different time horizons and that naturally leads to different types of conversation because the directors are talking about return on capital employed and earnings before interest, tax depreciation and amortization and that kind of language. And then managers are talking about you know end of month targets new machinery budgets capex approvals and the guys on the shop floor are saying you know can i get a new grinding wheel and when are they going to fix the 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 welder you know so fundamentally the levels of responsibility we've got dictate a difference in language and a different um level of perception in the world about what's important looks like and what good looks like Um, and so you end up with kind of cultural layers and then you can link this into transactional analysis, which is that parent adult child stuff um, where you get cross communications and it's very difficult to talk across different cultural layers because you're talking a different language. So you might be setting targets in terms of sales, operations or financial planning um, at a director level. It's very hard to translate that in KPIs down to the shop floor. And then you find that KPIs are either, you know, you get you get conflicting KPIs between departments. So people are putting driven to put in different directions by the judgment mechanism that's imposed upon them. Um, and then if you don't get those KPIs aligned, then 
um, they can act as judgment mechanisms for everybody as well because they're presented in ways that don't make sense. So, you know, for me, this is why some of the the, the hidden um, principles and models and practices from Toyota, like Hoshin Canary, make a lot of sense because the original version of that that was um, introduced to Toyota in 1958 by Yoji Akao, because it's premised on respect for humanity, it actually drives the need for a common language. And over a lot of years and development, Toyota came up with the, the idea of making everything time-based. So what they do as a driver is think about raw material to finish goods timeline, order a cash timeline and concept a launch timeline. And then that becomes reducing those timelines becomes the catalyst for the annual initiatives, which all get measured in ways that connect to each other and a benefit the outcome of those drivers is the financial piece, the, the, the you know, profit before tax and whatever else you're measuring in the business and cost of quality, cost of sales. Those things reduce as a byproduct of addressing the wastes that sit in those timelines. So that was the clever, the psychologically clever bit about Hoshin Canary is that it gives a common language, you know. So there's, there's, there's a lot more. I think from a psychological, through a psychological lens to be understood about lean yet, um, especially lean tools and techniques and how and why they work for human brains. You know, same thing for visual management, 5S, you know, there's a lot going on in the brain when the brain's taking in visual signals and converting it through the dorsal and lateral streams to, you know, where, whichever parts it's going to and it helps the brain not make the assumptions and make the mistakes it makes when it can not, not see things, you know. We all know optical illusions work. You know, when we get used to seeing something, we expect it to be there and sometimes we fill in from memory and we see things that aren't there, you know, things like the... Um, the gorilla walking through the basketball team, that kind of stuff on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. But if, if people wanted to learn more about this, because there's, there's so many different, um, like you say, it's so complex, there's so many different aspects of it, how, how would somebody start to um, to kind of just scratch away at the surface to, to get a, a deeper learning of it? it are there resources um, out there, typical for oh, yeah. organisational change? Not necessarily for organisational change, because I think it, neurogenesis, Elizabeth Gould only really identified neurogenesis and brought it back out of the woods in 2009. So we're only 10, 11 years into a, a new level of focus on the neuroscience that sits behind the psychology. Um, so it, it's just starting to gain traction and, and really get some momentum. Um, obviously, you had David Rock and the Neuroleadership Institute a long, long time ago, and I've been banging this drum for 15 years. Um, but now I've seen a, a fundamental shift in language on LinkedIn, and people are now talking about this openly. Sometimes it's linked to um, well-being and sometimes about inclusion issues from a diversity and HR perspective. Um, but when it comes to change and trans organizational transformation, there are some you know, early adopters and some takers, and it's starting to really get some, some, some movement now. Um, but in terms of good books to read and things, I mean, I, I loved transactional analysis. So that the I'm okay, you're okay book, uh, by Byrne, um, and Harris, that was, um, that was, that was where I started. That was the first book on psychology I ever read. Um, other really interesting stuff to listen to John Medina's book, brain rules, um, is fantastic, but I found it was much better to listen to as an audio book than it was to read, uh, that just might be my personal preference, but that's that's really good. And so there's there's a lot of resources out there. The Brain Science Podcast by a lady called Ginger Campbell out in um, in the states that's been running for quite a few years now. I think she's up to about episode 170. Um, and since episode 60, 70, 80, 90, um, the, the the quality of those 
productions is, is fantastic so um, and there's, there's all sorts you can get into um, but yeah I mean it's it's there's not that many people taking it on board from an organizational change point of view just yet so there's not that much literature about the neuroscience of change out there um, I've been trying to write a book for a long time and I find it very difficult so <laughs> yeah I mean you know there's there's loads of, I mean again I, I've had my own business in the past before I joined GT uh, that's called ducks in a row and I've still got a website that runs there's quite a few blog posts on there my LinkedIn profile I've written on this stuff for a long long time so there's 30 or 40 different articles on there to read um, I've made a few presentations at the Barbican and different places around Europe and some of those are on video and on my LinkedIn profile so I mean just to just to get started anybody can sort of poke at a link see which title intrigues them and, and try and soak a bit up from that angle as well perhaps yeah no perfect thank you for that so you spoke about culture and and so change is such an individual thing i remember um 10 15 years ago working in working in an office environment delivering a change and and it required some people to move desks and one mm. person individual that was a mass that was the biggest change in the world to them and to everybody else it was it wasn't such a big change so is is there a tipping point um between the, the numbers of people that that you need to influence or to get them to, to believe and think differently that maybe there's a percentage or a number that can help with that transition or not? Um, good question. I, I think, again, it's, it's an individual thing and, and a lot of people struggle with change much more numbers as you've just described. Um, and that will be down to self-concept and, you know, the, all the different um, challenges they've experienced through their lives and the different imprinting accidents they've suffered um, along the way so I mean you're always going to find that not everybody can make the transition and if it's too uncomfortable um, then then people will leave rather than change um, and they'll go and, and actually it's because it's then perceived in the brain to be their choice then they find whatever they go into next you know okay to live with because they've chosen but it's the imposition of the change that seems to be the difficult bit um, as far as tipping point is concerned um, I think the only thing that's popping to mind is, you know, um, years and years ago, Jack Welsh paid about three or four different, I think it was all the top four consultants to collaborate and come up with a, a change method, which was called the CAP model, the change acceleration process. In that, at the back of that CAP model, you, you see that um, out of the six or seven different dimensions of change that are identified, which is like, you know, sponsorship and um, leadership and, and making sure um, there's genuine buy into the principles and all that kind of stuff um you they identify that you need to get at least five out of the seven up to at least 60 percent in terms of acceptance um, before you get that tipping point and the change will be sustained because then you get enough people behind it that have shifted and accepted um and made that adaption and then the social pressure the peer pressure comes in to convince anybody else to conform so even if they're still finding it comfortable do things the new way yeah um, got you got you okay no thank you and in terms of um because okay let me try word this question so it's quite easy for businesses to to buy something when they know what they're getting so like a 20 percent reduction in x or a 10 percent improvement in y when you're talking about changing people and having to go through brain and mind and then, and then culture which is um and talking three to five years how do you how do you get people to buy in to to, to that as a concept which might not have the the harder numbers associated with it straight away 
Um, it's, it's, again, good question. It's something I struggled with for years and years and years, and, and only in recent years I've been able to find the solution to that. And the answer is you can't. <laughs> you, you can't just go. I mean, you can in some respects. I mean, I'm working with a large global organisation at the moment that's looking to address sort of 24 out of 50 odd sites, um, and they're going through a massive transformation program. And when we are um, purposefully building in a, a program around the psychology of change that complements that transformation program. So some people understand why it's valuable anyway, and they choose to do it because they know it makes sense. But there isn't any hard and fast way to make that tangible connection between that and the bottom line. So we we have to have the conversation again. You know, again, go go off on one slightly here. <laughs> you know, um, Gemba. You know, this whole principle of of um, at the place where it happens. You know you can put and all the other different lean terminologies um that's all based around the theory of bar in in japanese language um and that's sort of going to where people are at and so there's there's alternative words alongside gemba that fit into this theory of bar that means you as a leader you need to go to where people are at in their heads and go to where they're at with their language so that you can engage them and take them on a journey to where you want them to be it's that kind of thing so what what i've found is that actually you you need to go to where people are at in their minds and deal with their problems and fix their pain points same as everybody does um scenarios um and when you understand what the business challenges are and you, you know with 35 years experience or whatever it is around europe you can kind of make all the links and uh, to people and say if you've got planning issues or you've got productivity issues or you've got you know you know you don't even use oe as a scorecard or your your data capture methods are, are inconsistent you don't actually know what, what money you're making or your skew analysis is wrong or you know you're working capitals out or you know you and you can bring all these things together to show people actually that there's a connection between these things and this when you look at root cause these are some of the issues um then you can say well actually look, this, if we can deal with root cause issues then we've got to deal with some of these the management the alignment the, the strategy deployment the um, clarity of communications across these cultural layers um, and then it usually makes sense to people i mean i've in the last six months to a year, I've, I've had these conversations with pretty much every client I've, I've met and every single one of them has taken me up on the offer of doing a couple of days. And I mean, the other thing is it's no cost barrier, really, because you can do you can get some of these key points across just to get people to shift their thinking in a couple of days, which is a sensible price point. So there's not a lot to lose and there's so much to gain. And then you can build on that. So it's, um, it's, a, it's about taking away the barriers um, and, and linking it through to solving the, the, the problems. Um, because like you said, if it's intangible and you can't see how it hits the bottom line, then nobody's going to do it. Yeah, no, perfect. It, it comes across that you absolutely love what you do. What is it <laughs> that you love most about it? The fact that it's made, studying this stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say from a dysfunctional family, from a large family that was, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters are a lot older than me and it's very much post-war kind of mentality, survival um, and a lack mentality uh, because dad was, you know, um, discharged mentally unfit out of the army because of some of the horrors that he saw, so he was always in and out of work and um, we, had a, we had a tin bath in the back garden that we dragged in on a Friday night and had to pump a washing machine into through hot water and, you know, and uh, a, a bucket for a toilet outside the back door, which was, you know, like nobody else that I lived grew up with when I was a kid. But um, I, so I mean, I'm, I've, I've been through um, some interesting times in my life as, uh, you know, as a kid. I broke my back uh, falling out of a tree. 
um, done all sorts. And, and some of those challenges that we all get in life in different ways, they, they set me up to be a typical Capri driving Essex idiot when I was 18 years old. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, and it's, it's great that I, I found this by chance and started reading it. It's made such a profound difference to my life. Um, and, and I would love to share what I've learned so that anybody else that's ever faced any internal struggles and suffered any self doubt and lack of confidence can do some of the things and, and adopt some of the practices that I've adopted for myself and, and benefit from it the same way I have. And I think, you know, if we can, if we can help, I mean, my biggest objective is really is to at some point get into parenting and teaching and, um, where we're still dealing with brains when they're in their formative stages. Um, but obviously the, most people in work are parents as well. So this is just a, a, a valid route to improving the development of human brains on the planet. And uh, I'd really just love to, to raise the level of awareness around this stuff so that it has a positive impact on humanity. Yeah. Sounds perfect. really big and grandiose that doesn't it? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it is. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect. Sense. But how young is too young to to, um, to to understand? Not to necessarily to understand it, but to apply some of this. Ah, it's not not at all. I mean, the thing is, it's, if we can help, I mean, parents and teachers and anybody that's exposed to kids understand what's going on in their formative brains like you say you've got this four phase imprinting process that goes through the first year the first three to five years you know the old sayings like give me the child till he's seven and i'll show you the man you know but that makes sense neurologically uh, it's just observations from the past but it, it all stacks up now we're looking at it through a scientific lens so none of it's too young it, it's all um in terms of if we can build it into the adults then the children grow up understanding it naturally you know, um, if we can introduce, again, this is what I said, culture pivots on language. If we introduce a new language register, a new vocabulary to all adults, um, then those adults talk with that language so that it becomes normal. Um, and if we can normalize the language around the science of the brain, so we all get an opportunity to understand, understand, understand ourselves a lot better. Um, and the earlier we can introduce that to kids in such a way that it uh, becomes normal to think about ourselves as our brain, then, then that can only be a positive thing as far as I can work out. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. So, I mean, I've, I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So yeah. how, how can I um, think differently or believe differently? So wh where would I start? Um, do you know what I would probably say? Um, start with a book called um, Blame My Brain by Nicola Morgan. Um because she does a fantastic job of, under, uh, of describing in very simple terms um, what a child brain development looks like, especially as they adolescence um, and the pruning process. And, and that's a great place to start. But um, I think if you could understand <clears throat> a little bit more about um, the, the, the rate of change. So when your, your children and my children and all of us were born um, at zero years old, we went from 25% um, of our neural mass, so a full brain, but in a small form, um, right the way through to three years old, that accelerated up to 85% of the maximum mass it ever achieves. So that's um, about 850 billion neurons right in your brain. And um, then that maxes out at about 100 billion as you go into adolescence. And then the reason, a lot of the reason why we all struggle with adolescence and we become quite strange characters as far as our, our adults around us are concerned is that a lot of the glucose energy that comes from our food to drive the brain is being diverted away from 
the, the normal act of neurogenesis and, and neural growth. And it goes into pruning back some of the neurons that are there. So we, we get a, a cleaner version. It's a bit like trimming the branches on an apple tree. So you get better fruit, you know, so the brain does a similar sort of thing. It's a fractal system. It's just like trees and, and, you know, the internal elements of our lungs and all that kind of stuff. So it's very natural it applies to the Fibonacci sequence, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, you, so you've, you've got, it's this early stage um, development phase that allows you to perceive your child as a developing brain. Um, and if you can understand what the right stimulus is to get that brain to develop at its maximum rate in its best way, then you can do much better things. You know, a lot of the, the kids toys are des- designed and developed tonight to address these points. So black and white stripy socks when they're real infants, you know, that massively accelerates their capacity to develop the visual cortex and, and get their eyes working properly. Um, there's, a, there's a key point at 10 months old when a baby's brain goes from recognizing the music in language so they hear that la 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 of a, a parent talking in baby terms. Um, and within a two week period of 10 months old, they go from that to being able to discern between two different languages. So they start to be able to get to understand who's their parent and who's speaking differently you know um so you, you you've got all of that going on and then the next phase is the um, emo territorial the emotional territorial imprinting phase and we all know that if you've had a two or three year old because they've all screamed in the middle of tesco's and you know had a tantrum because they saw something and in the spur of the moment decided that was the most important thing in the world um, and, and weren't leaving the shop until they got it so you know you get that um and depending on how we respond and react as parents in those moments deeply imprints the um, the message that, that comes from whether the child's approved of and good and worthy or not and disapproved of and some of those control mechanisms start to impact the way they then use that as their anchor point to determine everything else in the world. Um, and so when you get into that bit older phase, the semantic phase, um, so your six-year-old's into that now, uh, that's all about um, logical learning. So language, skills development in terms of the written word and um, literature and and maths and you know anything that's more logical that the brain's in a period where it can learn that logical stuff from sort of six seven years old up to pre-adolescence and adolescence um and then obviously you've got all the other stuff cutting in and the chemical mix and your brain changing which is a f- because of the btfa cycle you're talking about thinking and feeling uh, interacting with one another that cycle runs in both directions um so as the chemical mix that we loosely refer to as emotions and feelings um which is cortisol serotonin norepinephrine dopamine all the different chemicals in our brains as that mix changes in adolescence then that's when we have our mood swings and whatever else then as well but we've got all of those other chemical changes in our body as our sexual um organs get turned on and whatever else so you know we're um in any part of development for a child parents can massively massively benefit from understanding it and the same applies to understanding your your work colleagues and your reports and your boss and, and whatever else at work and the more we can understand each other the better job we can do of doing what's right for each other yeah no completely it comes back to, to one of the very first things you said when we started talking it's all about people yeah absolutely and, and, and everybody's different and I, I am i could talk to you all day um and uh, and maybe beyond as well it's so, so <laughs> fascinating and i've got so many questions but i am conscious of the time um so just a, a couple more quick questions if that's all right 
Yeah, I've got one, one more point I'll make based on what oh, you said right, about yeah. Zorbian people. Yeah. If, if we think about the, the Japanese words, and linking this back to the lean, because obviously that's where I, I started off and what I was trying to understand by studying all this stuff. If you look at um, the, the three words the Japanese have got for waste we see in businesses, one of them is to do with processed waste, which is muda, which we all know. And the other two, which a lot of people still don't know, is muri and mura. And they mean, you know, um, in terms of the, the original translation that came across in the 70s, um, it, it meant spirit imbalance and, and overburden but now you can put the technical um, lens over that and look at it in terms of cognitive dissonance and, and the release of cortisol in terms of stress so you know there's the Japanese always knew that it was two-thirds people and one-third process um, and we, we just now got the science to be able to catch up and understand that so uh, that, that's the last point I wanted to make well, yeah, no, amazing. final questions <laughs> no amazing amazing no thank you um, so what does somebody who, who loves the brain um, after the tea Crikey. Well, I mean, do you know what? Blueberries, walnuts, there's so many different things. Bananas are great. They've got serotonin in them. So um, if you eat bananas, it helps you keep happy. You never see a monkey cry, do you? No, you don't. It's true. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and what, what's, the worst, have you, what's the worst advice you've been given? Have you been given any advice? Um, crikey, uh, that's one I didn't see coming. I can't think of anything. No, I mean, no, I mean, no. I've had plenty of plenty of bad leaders along the way, but no, I can't yeah. recall it. No spot. <laughs> no problem. Well, what's what's next for David Borbis? Um, well, like I say, I'm I'm I've been talking about this stuff for a long, long time now, and and I have started to get recognised as. Uh, there's people in Holland that, you know, suggesting they might want to write books with me. So a good friend of mine, Emil Van Est, he's, um, he's just done a fantastic job. If anybody can find him on LinkedIn and look at his um, connection between um, cultural sort of modes and spiral dynamics, that's fascinating to see how he's overlaid the uh, different aspects of spiral dynamics against the, the um, cultural models that exist between East and West and the Japanese models. That's great. Yeah, what, um, was his, what was his name again? Emil Van Est. Um, so he's an interesting guy um, and we've been friends for a few years and uh, we've been talking about writing books for a long time so that could still happen if I can find the time in life um, like I say I'm now working with large corporates globally um, I'm getting new inquiries I've got two new inquiries from similarly large uh, corporate entities that um, sort of mid-market you know four billion turnover that kind of thing um, about doing more of this stuff so I'm hoping that you know we can do it I've, I've I've proven that it works in multiple case studies. I um, had quite a few turnaround successes where a standard approach to lean and that had failed in the past. So, yeah, I think, you know, just keep doing what I've been doing for a long, long time. Hopefully get a bit more traction, help build the team with GT support because we've got some amazing people around us at Grant Thornton. And I mean, we were just, uh, I'm in awe of, of the people that are sort of 30, 35 years old and just absolute machines at what they do. So um, I'm hoping, you know, I've, I've got some experience, I've got some ideas and uh, as a team, I think we'll be able to do a lot and take it to market at scale. So I'm hoping we'll be able to do, um, do some more with it and uh, do some, some good in the world. Yeah, no, fantastic. And if people wanted to connect with you, you mentioned LinkedIn earlier on, is it just David Borvis on LinkedIn? It is, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm one of the only ones on there. There's not many bovises about, so yeah, couldn't be no. to find me. Fantastic. No, thank you very much. And, and seriously, though, thank you very much for your uh, for your, for your time um, today. It's much appreciated. And like I said, I could, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but you are a busy, popular chap, so I will let you go and, and, and eat your bananas um, <laughs> for, for your tea. But thanks again, David. Much appreciated. Brilliantly. Thanks ever so much. I really appreciate um, being invited to, to do the, the uh, podcast and I've really enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Business Problems Solved. 
You can contact Lee on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lee Horton, the business problem solver, or via visiting www.leehorton.com for more content and to solve your business problems. And remember, saying you know how to do it is not doing it.